I'm so thankful. James chapter one, we have going to start a service, a series, I'm sorry, a series today through the book of James, five chapters in this book, but don't let the size of the book um, determine its quality because this book is packed full of Bible truth that, that we're going to, for the first half of this year or more, we're going to be tackling every verse, not going to skip a single verse. We're going to study every verse in its context and make application along the way. The subtitle of this series is Real Faith in Real Life. Sometimes I'm guilty as a pastor of just speaking Christianese, I call it, from the pulpit. Sometimes you say, have faith, and you're like, what does that mean exactly? Or this is going to strengthen your faith, and you're like, that sounds really cool, but what does that mean? Well, James doesn't leave it all vague. He, he gets down to, to, to like the, the floor level, right where we live. And he says, I'm not going to speak to you like a polished pastor, though he was one. He's just going to, he's going to speak to them right where they are. This, these messages that I'm going to preach, they're going to follow you home. They're going to follow you to Walmart. They're going to follow you to work tomorrow. Not going to be something you have to leave here. This is something that can affect your life 24-7. I recently heard about a story of a man in Florida who was outside on his backyard patio working on his motorcycle. He was revving it up in order to tune the engine and get it just right when all of a sudden the motorcycle somehow slipped into gear. Before he knew it, the bike slammed through the dining room window, dragging him behind it. It created a total mess. Of course, his wife heard the loud noises, so she came running into the dining room to see what happened. She looked and saw her husband laying on the floor covered in glass and blood. The dining room was a wreck. Oil and fuel from the motorcycle was all over the carpet. So she immediately called 911. When the ambulance got there, they looked at the husband to evaluate his injuries. And, and they didn't think there were any broken bones or, or, or life-threatening injuries. He just needed some stitches, of course. So they took him, took him to the emergency room in the ambulance. And the wife opted to stay at home to do what most women are really good at doing. And that's cleaning up your husband's messes. As she was cleaning up the mess, she grabbed some, some bounty paper towels to clean up the oil and gasoline from the carpet. But instead of disposing of them in the trash can, she tossed them into the toilet. Why are you on? You don't even know the story. <laughs> A couple hours later, her husband came home. When he walked into the house, he saw all the damage he had caused. The tables and chairs were ruined. The Dining room window was shattered. The carpet was stained. He was depressed over what he had done. So he walked upstairs to the bathroom, sat on the toilet and lit a cigarette. I guess that's what guys do when they're depressed. I don't know. After he was done, he flicked the still lit bud into the toilet. The toilet where the bounty wipes are that she used to clean the gasoline and oil from off the carpet. To surprise, the toilet was engulfed in flames and he got severely burned on, well, some more sensitive parts of his body. <laughs> Immediately, his wife calls 911 and the same crew that came to his rescue earlier that day came back and began to treat him in the upstairs bathroom. 
They just immediately put him on a stretcher, knew they had to get him to the hospital. As they lifted him up, they were asking what happened so they could have a little bit of history here. Well, the wife told them everything. Well, the paramedic carrying the front part of the stretcher got so tickled by what the husband did that he started laughing. And he accidentally dropped his side of the stretcher, causing the husband to fall off the stretcher, roll down the entire flight of stairs and break his ankle. You ever had that kind of day? One thing went wrong after the other. I guess it'd be more fair to to ask, have you had weeks like that? You ever had months like that? Years? Seasons of your life? Times in which you just can't kick something. It just keeps showing back up. Times in which problems mount and it feels like Everest to you. Maybe at home, at work, at school, at church, maybe in a relationship, in your finances or in your health, or maybe several of those places at once. Times in which you basically threw your hands up in the air and thought to yourself, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I going to survive this another day? I got some good news for you. You're not alone. James writes this New Testament letter to people who are asking the same questions. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to respond to these difficult trials that just won't go away? See, 15 years earlier, James had been their pastor. But many of them had to flee their city because it just became too dangerous for them to be a Christian. As the story goes in the book of Acts, one of the members of their church, a man by the name of Stephen, had been executed on some trumped up charges. And the authorities were ready to go after the other members of the church next. And so they all fled for safety's sake. Boy, we got it good in America, I'll tell you that. As they tried to start life over in different cities and other nations, they found themselves facing almost insurmountable obstacles, trying to form this new life. They started new businesses and shops, but yet they were boycotted. At school, their their children are being tormented and bullied. In their markets, the wives were being cheated of their money and hassled. The, The citizens of the town hated them because they were Jews, but it gets worse. The Jews hated them because they had turned to Christians. They found themselves scattered everywhere, separated from their friends, their family, where they were raised. And now they're being harassed on on every side by this hostile world in which they live. And they begin to wonder what you've wondered at times during your trial. What is going on? Why does the Christian life have to be the hard life? What am I supposed to do with these Trials, when, when James, their former pastor, heard they were going through this, his heart went out to them. So he used the opening verses of his letter to instruct them how to respond to their trials. He answers their questions. And I want you to hear something. What he tells these persecuted Christians about their trials all the way back in AD 45 still applies to Christians today like you and me who face our own trials. You understand God has preserved his word all these thousands of years so we could learn from it. So let's read the first four verses. James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ to these 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Greeting. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. In these few verses, we find two ways in which we should rightly respond to the trials in our life. And I want you to hear me, church. It is crucial for, for believers to learn what to do with their trials. If we don't learn how to get the most out of them, we will be of all people most miserable. Let's study the first response to our trials. Number one, be joyful in trials. Now, before you, you, you just write me off like that's impossible and that's insensitive, I, I want you to study with me for a moment. Because James says, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. Now, as you read these words, you're probably thinking, who are we kidding here? Right? Be, be joyful when I'm suffering. I mean, what am I supposed to say? I'm so happy. I just learned I have cancer. I'm rejoicing. My spouse just left me. I'm ecstatic. I'm going bankrupt. Pastor, it is so hilarious, isn't it? My husband's out of work. Count it all joy, Pastor, really? What does that mean? Well, it's not some kind of psychological gimmick. It's not a case of grin and bear it. It's not put on a happy face because, well, you're a Christian. It's not even find the silver lining in your trial. It's much deeper than that. Because James didn't say, feel it all joy when you go through a trial. Because he's not necessarily talking about the way you feel through your trial. You aren't expected to feel happy when life is hard. He uses the word count it all joy. You know why? Because he's talking about the way you think through your trial. The battle is won or lost in the mind. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we can will ourselves to be happy rather than depressed. We don't have some happiness switch that we can just turn on. But we can choose how we think. The word count is an economic term. Study with me for a moment. It means to evaluate. Some of you are doing this with your taxes right now. Taking a careful look. Calculating something. To think through it is what it means. So when James says count it all joy, he's not talking about an emotional response. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a logical response. See, trials don't add up very well, do they? That's why when we're going through a trial, usually the first question we're tempted to ask is this, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? Because trials don't always make sense. That's why James starts here. He tells us that we have to use a different calculator. We have to use a different adding machine in trials. We can't use our feelings. That's a really bad adding machine. We use our feelings, we're going to get bitter, we're going to get angry, we're going to get even more depressed. We have to evaluate our trial, not from the standpoint of our emotions, but from the standpoint of joy. Now, you might not be bought in yet, and that's fair. That's why James writes verse 2, because he tells us how we can look at it with joy. Look at verse 2. My brethren counted all joy. I'm sorry, verse 3 is what I, is, is what I meant. So look, if you have your, your Bible, look at verse 3. I messed up on that one. 
knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So if the word count in verse 1 means to think through something, then verse 2 tells us what we are to think through as we experience trials in our life. I say it this way. We are to think through what God is up to. Did you get it? He said, know something, verse 2. We're to think through what God is up to. If we're going to look at our trial through the lens of joy and not anger or bitterness or discouragement, we have to know this. God is up to something good in our lives. I like what Frederick Buechner said. Christians aren't necessarily any nicer than anybody else. They're just better informed. Oh, I like that. So then what is God up to that we need to be informed about in order to have this joyful disposition during our trials? Well, verse two says that God is trying our faith or verse three rather says God is trying our faith. He's testing our faith. That word trying describes a common process they used in that day for refining gold. They would put gold into a fire. They would heat it up in order to refine it or, or extract or remove the impurities from it. An old song that I learned as a, as a child growing up is how to rejoice in the Lord. A couple lines of that song say this. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. He knows the end of each path that I take. Watch this. For when I am tried, same word, and purified, I shall come forth as gold. The songwriter's referring to that refining process. And that's what we have to think about if we're going to respond with joy during our trial. We have to say to ourselves, self, cheer up. Because God is up to something in your life. We have to know that God is strengthening our faith. He's purifying our life through this trial. It's when we evaluate our trial that way, when we think through our trial that way, that we can have this sense of joyful anticipation. We can be eager to find out what God is up to. We can anticipate who and what God is making us to become through this difficulty. Now I want to be super clear because I don't feel like you're bought in yet. That doesn't mean we have to be joyful about the pain in our life. But we can be joyful about what the pain is producing in our life. That's what we can anticipate. Jesus models this. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the next word, please. Everybody say it. Who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross. Jesus wasn't happy about going to the cross. Did you know that? All you got to do is study the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, please let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to go to the cross. He wasn't happy about that. Here's what made Jesus joyful. After the cross, he was going to be resurrected. And as a result, every sinner would have an opportunity to be saved and resurrected themselves. That's what made him happy. He was joyful about the resurrection, not the crucifixion. But the crucifixion was necessary in order to get to the resurrection. He wasn't joyful about the pain of his trial. He was finding joy in what his father was going to produce through the pain of his trial. If Jesus isn't a good enough example, well then think through the eyes of a pregnant woman. If you can. When Jenny was pregnant, I had to think a hundred times over in my mind, why did she want to do this? Morning sickness. 
vomiting, headaches, cramps, swollen ankles, cankles is what I call them, moodiness, weird cravings, sleepless nights, not to mention the day of labor, contractions, pain, discomfort, just really all together, just nastiness. Why would a woman, hear me, go through that and while she's going through that for nine months, still have this weird sense of joyful anticipation? Not because of the pain, but because of what the pain would birth. Women can go through nine months of pregnancy and hours of labor pains with joyful anticipation, knowing they will have their own child to hold. Their own child to nurture. Their own child to raise. This is what it means to count it all joy when we're going through a trial. God is using our pain to give birth to some amazing things in our life. So why are you grumpy about it? Your pain can give birth to a deeper faith in God. Anticipate that. Your pain can give birth to a greater sense of empathy in your soul. Anticipate that. Your pain can give birth to more endurance for future and even bigger trials. Your pain can give birth to greater humility. Your pain can give birth to a greater sense of kindness and love and grace toward others. It can give birth to more patience in your life or to a deeper knowledge of God and a greater appreciation for his goodness. It it can give birth to a greater dependence on God through prayer. The point is that we can go through trials with joyful anticipation, knowing God is up to something good in our lives. We can't feel instant happiness and we don't have to. It's not going to be fun and that's okay. But if you'll stop long enough to think your way through it, you'll come to the point where you say something like this. Lord, this is going to be an adventure. It's going to be interesting to see what you're up to in all this, but I'm ready. I'm ready to see what you're going to do in me. Now, the danger of not thinking that way, hear me, is that you start to be ruled and led by your emotions and your feelings in the trial. God given emotions, but emotions that are supposed to be under control. Think about a truck driving down the interstate. On a very windy day, it's hauling this large trailer full of cargo. Do you see it? Sometimes you you see the wind pushing that cargo trailer back and forth. I like to get around those trucks as quick as possible. It's as though the cargo is controlling the ride more than the engine's controlling the ride. And that's dangerous because whenever the cargo controls the ride, you have a truck that is soon to be out of control. And sometimes we're like that in our trials. Our emotions are swinging back and forth. And the cargo of our feelings is telling the engine of our life where to go. Instead of the engine of our life telling the cargo of our feelings where to go. And that's dangerous because a life that is being led by its feelings is a life that is soon to be out of control. Especially during a trial. So we have to choose to respond to our trial by saying, Lord, I don't like this. Lord, I wouldn't have chosen this for myself or my loved one, but I'm going to think through this long enough until I'm convinced how I should respond, not out of my feelings, but joyfully anticipating everything you're about to do in my life. 
in his book, He's God and We're Not. Ray Pritchard writes of a man. Sounds crazy, but this man threw counted all joy parties. The invited guest would ask him, why are you having this party? Is it, your, is it your birthday? Is it your anniversary? Did you get a raise? He responded, no, I'm having this party because I'm going through a trial. I'm going through a hard time and I want to celebrate because I know God has something good planned for me in the end. Now that may sound unrealistic if you're currently going through a trial and you might be like, I ain't throwing any counted all joy parties. But, but even though it's kind of a dramatic application of James 1, it still is an application of James 1. The man in Mr. Pritchard's book is intentionally thinking through what God is up to in his life so he can gain this sense of joyful anticipation for the person God is making him to be. Do you see it? Say amen. The first response to our trials to be joyful. There's one more response. Look at verse four. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Be joyful in your trials. Number two, be submissive in your trials. I, I want to show a level of empathy here because I sense that exactly what I did when I wrote this sermon. I sense that if you're going through a trial, this feels almost um, impossible. Maybe as you hear this, count joy, be submissive, you're thinking to yourself, I feel like you're in, I'm in bondage. Like that's, it seems so hard, so unrealistic for me right now in my heart, my mental health, my feelings, my emotions, that man, my cargo trailer swinging everywhere. And I don't, I don't understand how James could say, count it all joy. I want to show a level of empathy with you right now. I know it's hard. I've been there. I've dealt with things in my life. Maybe not as big as you have. I don't know, but I've lost a loved one. My wife has been sick. We've had bad diagnosis. We, 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 we've had tough times financially. We've been betrayed before. Like, I get it. To hear a message like this right in the midst of your trial might feel like, oh man, would he move on? But I can't. According to this passage, as a child of God, you are expected to have a good attitude in your trial. As hard as it may be, you can know that God is something up to something good in your life. But, but then this one gets maybe even a little harder because this is where the rubber meets the road about submission. See, verse 4 says that, that, that God is trying to work something in us, this new level of patience. You study that word, it really just simply means endurance. He wants to get you to a new level of spiritual toughness. You know what I mean? An ability to stand stronger for longer. If you've ever seen somebody later on in their life who can make it through some very difficult times and it doesn't seem like they're shaken, that's not because they were born that way. It's because at some point before that trial, they had other minor trials that built this level of endurance in them to prepare them for that trial. This endurance that Jane speaks of, it, 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 it really is just a means to an end. That's not the final goal. The end of verse 3 or, or 4 rather tells us the final goal. He wants us to be perfect and entire. So in other words, we need to submissively endure our trial 
for as long as it takes for God to do what he needs to do in us to make us complete and entire and lacking nothing in that specific area of our life that he's going to work on. But, but here's where, where it gets hard because God desires all that for us, but he won't push it on us. Are you with me? He'll provide the trial through which it can happen, but he won't make you submit to the process. That, that's a response you have to choose for yourself. In other words, you have to decide whether or not you're going to cooperate with what God is doing in your life. Are you going to tap out? Are you going to check out? Are you going to run away? Are you going to escape? Are you going to numb yourself during this trial? Are you going to submit so God can do in you what he's trying to do? Friend, please listen to me. I say this in love. If you're still resisting your trial, or you're resentful that you have to face the trial, or you're angry with God for not doing something about your trial, or you're bitter toward the people involved in the trial, hear me please, my friend, you've not come to the place of submission. You're not letting the trial produce in you what it's meant to produce in you. Somewhere along the way, you have to decide to let God finish his work in you. You've got to quit running. You've got to quit getting bitter. There, there's got to be this gentle yielding to God, a moment of decision where you say something like this, Lord, I'm going to let you finish the process. Whatever you're producing in me right now, I want it. I don't like it, but I need it. So keep me steady, God. Keep me focused on what you're after. And don't let me take your, my eyes off of your good work in me until it is finished. Would you write this down? The only way out of a trial is through it. The only way out of a trial is through it. You can't go around it and still be spiritually mature. You can't go right up to it and still be spiritually mature, perfect, entire, lacking nothing. You have to go through it. Why? There are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. There's no bypass. How many have noticed in the last two years or so, we've got a lot of trains coming through our little town? Does that irritate anybody else? Maybe you're more sanctified than me. And how many of you know that those suckers stop a lot? What's going on with that? Somebody tell me, come through the line and tell me if you've gotten to the bottom of that. I need to have some closure. <laughs> because those trains come at the worst time and stop at the worst time. Here's what the citizens of the good town of Liberal have figured out. They can take a U-turn. And I've joined them. <laughs> and, and you can go out west down 2nd Street by Keating and then turn down, head toward Old 54. And, and, and sometimes you can... You can uh, go right by Air Products and, and get through there. Sometimes you can't. So then you've got you to go all the way down 8th Street, go over the overpass. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody done any of that before? You want to admit it? All right, very good. Well, sometimes we think that way with our trials. See, trials are like trains. They, they slow us down. They impede our progress. And they come at the worst possible times. And so we're tempted Take a U-turn. We're tempted to run. We're tempted to find a way around the trial. The sad indictment 
is that many of us live with this cut and run mentality. We quit our jobs when we're mistreated. We end friendships when we're disappointed. We divorce our mate when we're unsatisfied. We leave a church when we're offended. We change cities when we're unhappy. This could explain why some Christians will go through a trial, but then come out worse than when they went in. They come out angry and bitter and pessimistic and sour. Their faith is weakened, not strengthened. It's because they kept trying to go around. They kept trying to shortcut spiritual maturity. Can I encourage you, friend? Don't be concerned about how you can get out of the trial. Be concerned about what you should get out of the trial. Did you hear me? Don't be concerned about how you can get out of the difficulty. Be concerned about what you should get out of the difficulty. So let me ask you, what's the trial for you right now? Poor health? Loneliness? Disappointed expectations? An absent husband? A distracted wife? A hyperactive child? A rebellious teenager? Mounting bills to pay? Overwhelming demands at work? Disappointment in friendship? Whatever your trial may be, you now know from God's word, not from me, from God's word, the right way to respond. Be joyful and be submissive. You may be thinking, Pastor, I, I can't do that right now. I can't have that kind of response. I'm not there. Well, you may be right. This radical command isn't meant for everyone. If you've not listened before now, please listen now. In verse 2 of our text, James addresses his readers as what? Brethren. Brethren. That's how he opens verse 2. My brethren. He's not just talking to the men. When he uses that term brethren in the New Testament, it's gender neutral. That word brethren acknowledge, acknowledges something. It acknowledges that the readers, both male and female, are part of the family of God. So in this way, James indicates that those who are spiritually qualified to obey this command, to be joyful and submissive in their trial, are believers. Those who are part of the family of God. Christians, my friend, are the only ones who are expected and capable of truly responding with joy and submission when life gets hard. Which leads me to ask you the most important question that anyone can be asked. Are you a Christian. Are you a child of God? Are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ because you've placed your complete faith in what he has done for you to make you right with God? Listen, if you are truly saved today, your trials on this earth are the only hell you'll ever experience. Praise the Lord. But if you're not saved... The trials you face on this earth will seem like heaven compared to the hell in which you'll spend eternity. 
to the one in here who doesn't know Christ personally. I want to invite you today to a saving relationship with the Father. You just have to believe in something that we call the gospel. The gospel. I often say the gospel, and it does. It it means good news. But I heard a preacher describe it a different way earlier this week. He said the gospel is not just good news. He said the gospel is bad news. It's worse news. It's good news. Then it's the best news. And he explains it's amazing. He he said it's bad news because you have sinned against God. That's bad news. Why? Because God cannot be in a relationship with people that sin against him. He's a perfect, holy God. It's bad news for all of sin, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. But it gets worse. You can't do anything about it. You cannot fix this problem. You cannot meet the righteous demands of God. I'm thankful you're at church today, but that does not save you. It's neat that you may have had a previous baptism experience. That does not save you. I'm glad that you're a good person. That doesn't save you. I'm glad you spent a large portion of your life being religious or taking communion. That doesn't save you. The worst news of all is you can't fix this thing. You cannot meet the righteous demands of God. The good news is Jesus did it for you. He did. That's why on the cross, he said this, it is finished. Then he died. His very last words meant something theologically. They meant that he paid it all. On the cross, the cross he didn't even want to endure. The cross he he looked to with joyful anticipation. That trial, that cross, he hung on that cross in your place. You couldn't have done that. Only a savior who had never sinned could do that. But there's best news. The best news is that you don't even have to do anything to get it. Nothing in the sense of of communion or baptism or good behavior, you can never earn it. And, and so the Bible says that all we've got to do is place our faith in what Jesus did. This is the best news that your eternity is not up to you. All you have to do is place your eternity in the hands of God and he takes care of all the rest. Amen. What does that look like, pastor? Here's what it looks like. Humbling yourself. And saying, I know I'm a sinner. And I've tried all kinds of ways to fix it, but I haven't. And so Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? I'm placing my faith in your death, in your burial, in your resurrection. The best I know how I'm giving my life to you. I'm repenting and turning my back on everything but Jesus. To get to heaven. That's when you can be joyful in a trial. That's when you can be submissive in a trial. What I I preach today is not some self-help. Here's two ways that you can have a good attitude in your trial. That is not the point. You are incapable of being joyful and submissive without Christ. Would you do that today? Christian, 
If you're in here and you're wrestling today with a trial and you know in your heart you have chosen to not submit. Maybe it's been your excuse. It's just too hard. Or I don't know how. Or I'm not the kind of person that opens up. Whatever it might be, you know you've chosen to not let the process do its work. And you're resisting and maybe resentful. And this message is to invite you to come to an altar today. And to say, God, I'm sorry. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you're doing. I don't even know what to do. But help me to practice James 1, 1 through 4. Help me to be joyful and submissive. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed?